Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. I hope you're keeping safe and healthy, and I'm, I'm doing pretty good, all things considered. I mean, I'm just trying to stay in the gratitude. So I'm making this podcast, you know, and this is Radical Musings, and today I bring you an episode with my good friend Susie Landolfi. Susie is an author. She's a trauma therapist. She's a sex expert or sexpert, and what an uplifting conversation. I felt so invigorated after we spoke because she just is so inspirational. She helps people find strength from their trauma. Instead of it taking them down and destroying their life, she figures she they gain strength and learn how to work with it, and it's a part of their lives so that they can heal and feel safe in the world. We talk about our childhood, Hers is a great story, and when we speak of social justice and speaking out and speaking our truth. This conversation took place just before the holidays, and honestly, I could have spoken to her for hours, and I do. I mean, I, I, I'm so lucky. She's also the founder of the Big Heart Ranch in Malibu. The Big Heart Ranch is such a gorgeous place. It's just such a space. I spent my last birthday this summer, August 10th there, and just she has all these animals that she works with, her people that are going through um, trauma work, trauma therapy, and with animals. So she has all these cool farm animals and horses, and some of them are, you know, she had a blind donkey, and she they all they all are very special, beautiful animals. And the kids come, um, uh, you know, from inner city kids to be out there, and it's just it's been. It's been a very uh, beautiful experience, the Big Heart Ranch in Malibu that she has. Check out BigHeartRanch.org for more information after this episode. Take a listen. I'm so happy to be here with Susie Landolfi, who's who's one of the most amazing women I've ever met, which is also, she's a trauma therapist. She's uh, She was an actress. I'm, I'm going to let her talk about what she does in life because... It's uh, worth knowing about, and and I wish that we could all have access to Susie Landolfi. And you know what else I was? I was a hypocrite, and <laughs> right? And I lied, and I couldn't find my own balance because of my own trauma. So what happened was I had to fall apart, and then I got to put myself back together. I got to create the person I deserve to be and the life I deserve to have. So when you and I are hanging out and doing our stuff together, like you know that I'm not asking you to do anything I'm not doing. And that's what's key to me because I wasn't safe at one time because of what I went through as a child. So right. that's a real interesting introduction. I've never said that before about myself. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. I mean, I I, I also was a trauma. Uh, yeah. I had a very tra- traumatic uh childhood with a mother that was a was a very very horrible child beater who uh was rageful and and but also came from that herself and so what it is is the patterns that we're trying to break in our own lives i know that 
I was not a child leader with my daughter. Right. I may have made some mistakes, and you know, and that's not to say I didn't yell. We should have a club because we, we all made mistakes. We all made mothers. mistakes, but I never was a child beater, and I also wasn't. But but we grew up with so much drama and rage in our family, like actor family, and so there was always it was everything was heightened and always dramatic. And so when you're raised in that way, it's really hard. As an adult, and when you have your own child, like, do I want to raise this little child in this way, thinking that you're so much better than your parents, and then, like, you're, you're doing the best you can. That's exactly right. Now, here's the other side. So we have these traumas, and we have effects of them, which did not help me create the person I wanted to be on some level, mostly in relationships, whether it was mother or, or with a partner or whatever. The other thing I got, and you did too, because I know you, is we got that post-traumatic growth. Some of the greatest strengths I got was from that trauma. So when you say that I can help people and I do all this stuff, well, that's part of it too. And that's the balance. I can't just keep saying I just got shit from my childhood. I also got tremendous strength. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I mean, I don't want, because my mother was one of the greatest inspirations in my life and ended up healing her own trauma by becoming a trauma therapist. (laughs) That's right. And then she died of cancer and wasn't able to do it. But, but. That's what she healed her own trauma by helping others. Is that what you feel? And we can all do that. That's the point. And that's why we have to be interdependent. That's why we get to have relationships. That's why you and I hang out. Not just because, you know, well, we want to talk about this or that. It's because you inspire me. I inspire you. We call each other out. We help one another. We really focus on what we do well. If you keep focusing on what you do badly, you'll do more of it. If you focus on what you do well, you'll do more of it, and you'll start to feel better about who you are creating to be. Every single day, you have that opportunity. And I've watched you, Rosanna. I've watched you get up every day and go, okay, uh, today I'm going to practice this better. Today I'm going to do this. And not only do you do it in your own personal life, you do it for the world. So let's talk about that social justice, because when I'm sitting on the couch with my white Anglo-Saxon Protestant mother with blue eyes, and we're watching a John Wayne movie, and this is not to say anything about John Wayne, it just happened to be a John Wayne movie, and the Native Americans are coming you know, at them, and they're having the big fight, my blonde, blue-eyed mother looks down at me like this and says, root for the Indians, we did worse to them than we did to the Blacks. That's what I grew up with. I grew up with that kind of strength and that we can't ignore that we live with one another and that we need to care about one another. Yeah. And you're that. You're one of those warriors. And you're going to get a lot of shit for that sometimes. And you're going to get a lot of things. I get death threats and shit. (laughs) But I had a mother who, you know, tried to integrate a a little nursery school that was in Harlem that was all black. And and I was the only white child. Like, I, I grew up in social justice full on it and it's it's the my greatest memories in childhood were like the love ins peace ins the anti-war movement marches i mean that's how i was raised my mother you know took the kids i was on this trip but like locked her like locked herself on the of of um the nuclear power plant up north with the kids and they had sleeping bags. You know, like I think everybody, I, I wasn't, a, I wasn't at that one. Everybody else is at Disneyland yeah, yeah, and yeah. you're at a nuclear power plant. Yeah. I get it. That makes perfect sense to me. So you are. tell me how you grew up. So I grew up uh, poor fathers uh, was son of an immigrant Italian and my mother, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, like I said, in North of Boston and they didn't, you know, do well because they couldn't. They didn't know how. My mother had child abuse as well. 
And my dad had a lot of it as well. And he was trying to make a name for himself. And he started his own restaurant. So I grew up in this wonderful Landolfi's restaurant, home of the big stuffed jumbo shrimp. And after they uh, divorced, um, my girlfriend, when I was in the sixth grade, said, let's go to dancing classes at the YMCA. So I did. And standing in front of me is this African-American man who looks like Nat King Cole. And he starts dancing with me. And all of a sudden, I just know how to do it. And he says to my mom, you have to bring her to my dancing school. And so we started to go over there. And then uh, we just merged with this family. We were from blonde and blue-eyed to Louis Armstrong Black and everything in between. And I grew up in a family where I experienced people calling me uh, not nice names because I was in a black family. And I grew up with a lot of wonderful people who loved what we were doing in this little white town. Um, And I'm very grateful. So again, trauma not. My sister married into a black family. Uh, And then uh, as I started to decide who I wanted to be after college, it just made sense that I had to go out and do more for what was going on in the world than less. I opened the first condom store in the United States, Condomania, during the AIDS crisis. Hold on. So let's, we've got to really talk about this right now. (laughs) Susie, you opened the first condom store called Condomania. And and that was during the AIDS crisis? Yes, because what was happening was, of course, the gay community, and I have a gay brother, and uh, it was getting decimated, and the companies that uh, produce condoms in the United States would not uh, advertise in the black community, and they wouldn't advertise in the gay community. Now, think about that for just a second. In fact, one company had a silhouette of a man and woman, a white man and woman, on their package as if to say, only white people and white straight people deserve to use condoms. So I was horrified and furious, plus the fact when you went to go get them, they were behind the pharmacist's head so he had to say excuse me could i have that extra extra large condom behind your head because no one's going to say can you give me the smaller one because that's going to fit better so i said okay we're going to have a store on bleaker and west 10th a 400 square foot uh store and we brought condoms in from all over the world because surprise surprise we don't make the best ones in the united states anymore or we didn't at the time i hope they're making them better now And uh, we made it so you could bring your kid in. You could bring in a teenager and say, okay, they're going to show you how to use a condom and what's the best ones and all of that. And uh, it was terrific. Was it packed? It was packed. So I (laughs) I had a Jeep. I didn't have any money. So I took a loan out on my Jeep. And this young man who I opened it with took out a loan on his Jeep. It's a funny thing. And we were $70,000 in debt the day we opened in a 400-square-foot store. This is like 1991. And uh, we made $1,500 in the first hour that we were open selling a, a, you know, a pretty much a dollar product. Fantastic. Yeah. And we opened here in Los Angeles and around the, the world, the country, not around the world. And what was nice about it was our job was to make it easier for people to be able to protect themselves and to change the system. So I didn't want to have these stores for the rest of my life. I truly, my intention was to get the big pharma uh, pharmacies and the big, uh, you know, the CVSs of the world and the Walgreens and bless your hearts because you have changed uh, to make sure that there was access to great product easily. So I didn't realize that there wasn't, there there weren't yeah. ways to get, con- so you, you helped in getting condoms into the CVSs yeah. and Walgreens. So now the- you can just walk down the aisle and get what you want and there's female condoms and all of that and we made it accessible and easier 
for anybody to get them and a better product. Your life is, you know, is on the line. Wow. So, and you so then then it just stopped because so it's, it kind of went on to online, like everything is now online, right. which was great. So we did that. So we didn't need the the store any longer because we had actually done our purpose. You changed the system. Changed the system. And I was doing AIDS education at the time and I was making fun of how we can't talk about sex because, you know, we can't. So I was doing that in colleges and that brought me to the attention of uh, some TV shows. I started to do television and then one thing goes to another and I had my own radio show here in LA and my own television show here in LA, late night show. And I uh, wrote a couple of films and then I wanted to go off and be a cowgirl. I was like, okay, I'm done with all that. It's time for me to go. So I think I was uh, 50 at the time. And I said, okay, let me go find out about horses. So I went to a ranch and I learned how to gentle wild horses. And that's what got me involved with starting Big Heart Ranch here in Los Angeles. So we're, I want to talk about Big Heart Ranch. I know I also I, I met you uh, years ago um, when you were working with friends of mine that um, were getting sober. Yes. So you became also your a sober coach? Yeah, I'm actually a, a licensed therapist. Yes. And because I come from a family of five people, so mother, father, sister, brother, and me, four of them all struggled with addiction. <laughs> so I'm the only what we like to call normies, but don't ever say that because yeah. there's nothing normal about anybody that lives in a family with struggling people. Exactly. <laughs> and so uh, so I had a lot of experience, you know, as a kid. And then I went and, and once I gentled the wild horse, by the way, how I got to become a therapist was it brought up all my childhood trauma. It put it right out in front of me because the horse won't deal with you unless you're congruent until your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions are one and you're honest, which I was not. And it was so profoundly life-changing that I said, okay, I have to go work with horses and help people, and that's equine therapy. So that's actually got me there. And then I became a, a uh, the clinical director of a drug and alcohol treatment, dual diagnosis this is great to have. So tell me about the Big Heart Ranch, which I just spent my birthday at this year. Yes, you Still did. haven't done my my um, ride, which now that the weather's like this, I'm going to do. Oh, but I can't wait for you to do your vision ride. It's called a vision Bitcoin. ride. Well, you'll tell me about, about right. the Big Heart Ranch. Okay, so uh, here I am in college at, you know, 50, and I'm learning about uh, psychology because I figured I either could spend $36,000 to give to a therapist because I'm so messed up, or I could become one, which just seemed like a better investment. But I wanted to do animals. So then I just, I partnered up with a person in Malibu that had horses. They didn't know anything about equine therapy. I did. And that was the beginning of Big Heart Ranch. And now we have our own seven acres uh, in Malibu. Uh, we're in the process of hopefully buying that property, which we're really excited about. We're on there now as a gift. Yeah. So we're, we're at this uh, property right now and I got to have you experience the wild horses we have there, as well as all the other animals that we have. So this year, my birthday, uh, I went with my daughter. It was a, a great day, and you brought us into a ring with these wild horses. Yeah. I felt very, I felt, sa- I felt really safe with going facing them like this. I just remember this feeling. And then, as soon as as they turned and their butt, like I didn't want to get kicked. Right. It was amazing. And I really went into like this fear, like they're going to kick me in the head right now. So go back to your childhood. Yeah. So this is how this works. That horse has no reason to kick you. Yeah. You've done nothing wrong, you know, to them or anything. And actually the horse was asking you to scratch its butt. Yeah. But because 
your own family at times, at times, was not safe. <laughs> Therefore, you have this hypervigilance about, oh, my God, what's going to happen? This isn't safe. This might happen. Because when your own family kicks, <laughs> it's hard to believe that this horse that doesn't know you. And so what wonderful about it is when you understand and you put those two together, you get to breathe and you get to really understand what is safe and what is not safe. Because they did come to me. They did because you are safe, because you have no agenda. Right. Because you're open hearted. That's who you are. Yeah, it came and, right to me, but I, 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 it was amazing. Like the, as soon as like it, the horse moved and the, I, I, I felt that right. like total And what did I get panic. to do? What did I get to do? You, you to walk me through it. Yeah, I walked you through it and I got to say, first of all, I'm your protector. Stand <laughs> back, little lady. I got you here, right? <laughs> so you trusted my expertise and my ability to protect you. If that isn't a great healing moment for yeah. you to know that there are people in your life, Rosanna, that love you and will protect you. That you're not always out there with people. Yeah, look, I can see it on your face right now. It's, it's true. It's been, a, it's been quite a journey these last couple of years, a yeah. few years about yeah. feeling unsafe yeah. in the world and, and, and just right. even so with we some of do that for people that you think that should have your back and they don't. Yeah, it's I know. Very, it's pretty painful awareness. It have. is. And to remember that you do have people that do. Yeah. So what happened was you kept moving closer to me and I to you. And that way, and then the horse goes, oh, two strong women. You know, horses protect one another. So they're watching you and I bond and your daughter. Yeah. And they're going, oh, can I, can I be part of this? Oh, like, can I join? Because they know that they can't survive by themselves. No wild horse herd, no wild horse would ever leave the herd on their own because they know it's not safe. Hmm. So that's different for us because that's not always true for us. So this summer, I know that you uh, you were really busy. I didn't get to see you a lot because you were doing um, a lot of camps with kids that you do a lot of work yeah. with uh, children from inner city, the, yeah, right? Yeah, inner city and any kid that's gone through any trauma, certainly uh, the kids that went through the Woolsey Fire, you know, they lost everything, lost their home and their parents. So we did a lot of camps for them. And it's so easy outside. We can social distance. The kids were great at wearing masks. The horses wear fly masks. So what's really funny is the kids went, oh, they're wearing masks too. <laughs> so we can do that and our staff. And I also work a lot with veterans. And yes. that and has been life-changing for me. So the Wounded Warriors, yes. which is a huge part of your work. Tell me about that. What so there's a wonderful organization that started in Los Angeles called Merging Vets and Players, and they took combat veterans and they took retired professional athletes who were struggling. Because once the uniform comes off, who are you and what do you do? And they made this national organization. We're in five cities around the country, and they have workouts together because we now know that the quickest thing to change your brain and the most uh, sustainable way to change your brain is physical activity. We now know that and we need to do more of that. So we work out all together uh, for about an hour and then we sit around and we have a huddle, much like you and I can do, that we can sit down and talk about our struggles and it's peer to peer. So even though I'm a therapist, I'm not acting as a therapist there. I'm the executive director and they help one another. They are back home now, they are here and they need to create a new life and they deserve to do it with a team. So both of those men and women know about team. They know about, you know, working together. They know how important it is. And the funny thing is, Rosanna, I didn't realize this. I mean, I had uh, family members in the military and I had even a couple of stepbrothers who were professional athletes. 
And I could see even as a kid how similar they were, even their language and their struggle, Mm -hmm. because once they lost their team, they were truly lost because that's part of what helps them. So that's what I do now. And we're in uh, Chicago and Los Angeles, and we are in Atlanta and New York and Las Vegas, and soon to be in Seattle and and Dallas. So I know that before you became, I mean, after you became a dancer, you were an actress. I was. So I actually was a dancer first and then became an actress because what happened to me as a dancer, which you just discovered today, so I've hung out with you I don't know how many times, and you finally said to me, oh my God, I didn't realize how short you were (laughs) because we're sitting in seats and my feet aren't touching the ground and yours are. And you so, don't seem, I'm standing right up, so we just have a conversation in the parking lot, and you seem, you know, in fact, big. energetically <laughs> ta- way taller than me, right, that's for right. sure. I always joke, say, but I'm the same height as everybody else when I lie down, and that's all that counts. But the, the point being is, is that I wanted to be a professional dancer, but the June Taylor dancers, the Rockettes, all those TV shows that I watched as a kid, which now you know I'm pretty old, I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't, I could dance crazy dance and I couldn't do it. And I saw that, couldn't be a ballerina, I was too short. So I went into acting because that's the great thing about acting. No age difference, no height difference. You can be anything you want. Did you ever try to do theater? I did. So I ran professional theater companies in Boston, which was so wonderful. And my first degree actually from Middlebury College is theater. So, and of course I ran... And I was assistant director of, um, is it Maxine Klein, who was the, doing the last political theater, the last surviving political theater. She was a crazy person, crazy wonderful. So I worked with her, and then I ran several other professional theater companies in Boston. So I always had a fantasy dream, which is so interesting that we're talking about, of somehow bringing theater into what you're doing, trauma, working yes. with with working with uh, mm-hmm. trauma victims like you do in the horse ring, but on the stage, which so important, and it's so important. I mean, I think even Eve Ensler's work, who I had the honor of going to college She's with. She's going to come on here. Oh, that's great. She's wonderful. I'll give you someone else. And v. Her, her name's friend. V now. V now. That's yep. true. And uh, she hangs out and has best friend of mine, James Lacine, who was the inspiration for the Trevor Project. So there they uh, are actually uh, uh, best friends. So her work, even the vagina monologues, is that not about trauma? Yes. Is that not? 100%. Exactly. That's what she, that she, but yes, and it's actors doing it, but I actually meant like kids are not actors working. And that's where when you do a piece like that, then you can, and they can even help write it. Yes. So her friend James Lacine, you should look up the Future Perfect Project, he does theater with LGBTIQ youth, and they write it and they act it. So So, you are right on the right track. Well, it was a conversation I had with Alexis, my trans sister who died of AIDS-related causes and and, um, four years ago, and and it was Alexis, a dream that we would always, I wish we had a center, a place that kids could go and and download and have therapy, but also have theater and wanted to teach acting. He, She, really? Alexis, was really into that. And, and it was something that we had together came up with, like, I've always wanted to do that. Let's like, do it. Yeah. <laughs> so we, you know, we do have the Alexis Project, which is for the LGBTQ youth, but it's a it's a medical center at USC Medical Center. But I love, my dream would to actually have an, an aspect of that, like, and be able to do that. 
So we may have to go to the Trevor Project and say, let's partner up and get James and get V and say, how do we do this Mm -hmm. uh, and and have that center? Because you're absolutely right. That's exactly. You know, one time the arts were our mental health. So I always yes. laugh when we go, you know, art therapy. No, you don't have to say therapy. <laughs> you just have to say art, you know, or drama therapy. No, you don't actually have to put the therapy on. It is therapeutic in and of itself. Creativity is healing. Absolutely. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our mental health. It's a big part. And, and they've tried to take it out of the school systems. They take it out of the schools. They try to tell us you're an artist, but you're not. Yes. You're a singer, but you're not. You're a dancer, but you're not. That's not okay. And that's actually why Native people have never needed mental health services um, until we showed up, you know, on the shores. Yes, exactly. um, because they understood that creativity was a part of your way of, you know, not just surviving, but thriving in the world. Thriving. And finding out who you are and creating who you want to be. We need to do more of that. That's absolutely, it's imperative. Gosh, that's so much. To, so much. Do you feel? We have a lot of work to do. We're, I know we do. <laughs> and in this time, it's been really like I, I, I took a lot today uh, for this whole couple of weeks. I mean, I'm doing this podcast and I'm in the kind of a dark place where I'm just like, I got to get it up. I've got to like talk to get myself, my spirit up, hello, spirit up and, um, and connect with people that I love to talk to. But it's really, it's energetically so overwhelming what's happening and to be able to walk through this and go, are we going to be okay? Like, I, are we? And, 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 and the, I know positive thinking and all of that, but it's been, it's really been challenging. So I'm sure with all the work that you do with the people that come to you, are you finding that more than ever people are just in their fear? They are in their fear. They're in their fear and sadness. And the sad thing is that when your entire family and your, which is a country is, you know, struggling so deeply, it brings back every fear and sadness you've ever had. So that's the other problem. We can't put this in just context of, well, that's just happened politically now, or that's just happening in Detroit, but it's not happening. no, it's happening in our entire family. Everybody's affected, whether you'd like to think you are or not. We are not independent. We are interdependent. I always say we need interdependence day, not right. independence day. And you're right. And it is going to be hard to continue to make choices and behave according to your principles, not your feelings. That's the key. So I can feel sad. I can feel scared. I get it. I know where it comes from. I can think scared and I can think sad. What I get to do and what you did this morning and I did this morning is we got the hell out of bed and we came here and we're doing Showed this. up. We're showing up yeah. and we're going to continue to show up and we're going to continue to make sure that we reconnect, even with those that I disagree with. Do you it. have a lot of Trump supporters that are, are um, in your in your work? <laughs> well, I have a few. And how do you deal with it? I have a few. It? Well, one of the things I'm curious about is who did this to you before? Who does he represent right. to you? How were you brought up to believe that somehow, somehow you've got to put others down to make yourself better? That's racism, sexism, homophobia. That's everything, right? Right. Where was it that you got so resentful that you think someone else has your stuff or your opportunity? 
you know, how are you always looking at, you know, and where did you need someone, a celebrity or anybody, make you feel valuable? Just because you you follow somebody, does that make you valuable? You didn't do what he's doing, so you can't even take credit for that, right? So for me, I'm curious about what happened to you to get you to that point. And I've had these conversations. Um, I have a a woman in my neighborhood and come to find out she had abusive dad. Now hear this, huge Trump supporter. He's going to make everything right. He's going to, and I said, you had an abusive dad. Your mom stayed. You then had an abusive husband. And now you can abuse a president. <laughs> makes sense to me. It just makes sense to me. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, I never thought about it that way. I, it never occurred to me. My dad and then my ex-husband and then my second husband. It's like, I, it's a redo. I call it a redo. You're looking for that person who really doesn't care about you to finally choose you. It's not going to happen. They yeah. can't do it. They're constitutionally incapable yeah. of doing that. So we get to understand. And I'm going to tell you this. And there's no judgment. I've noticed one no thing judgment. about you. You don't judge. I just told you something that was important. And like, you, you know, like that where, you know, I, I, you mm. could be judged for something, you know, you're, the, a decision you're making in a certain way you're going in your life. But and you don't judge. Never, never. If you, the minute you judge, you've made a decision. What is a judgment? It's a decision. It's a way of thinking. It's like, okay, you're guilty or you're innocent. How does that help you find out any more information? Like, you might be guilty, but I don't know how you got there. So how, why would I say that? Why would I just latch on to that right. when I want to know what happened to you? You know, I have a, a great mantra that I actually picked up with a bunch of uh, people that I worked with out at a veteran retreat. And we decided that we were so tired of labels. We were so tired of diagnoses. Like, I'm the worst one when it comes to that. It's like, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing wrong with you. Right. That's pejorative. There's nothing wrong with you. It's what happened to you. Mm. Now you've got to figure out what you want to have happen. Okay, so here we are talking about that. You know how something horrible happened to Donald Trump, didn't it? Oh, we uh, absolutely. Talk about abuse. Terrible abuse. And I'm going to tell you something. When you have that kind of abuse and you have that kind of dictatorial, authoritarian, I mean, think about it. He's only doing what was done to him. Mm-hmm. I always tell people you are at risk of doing to yourself and others what was done to you. And there's two kinds of people in the world, people who want to know what happened to them and want to change it, and people who don't. And there's about 38% of the population in this country from the time we started this country, this is not new, until now that don't want to know. They don't want to understand. It's too terrifying for them. They want to be right. Uh, They want to believe that what they believe is right. And you know what? I get it. But the trouble is that your way of being in the world affects everybody else. So it it just doesn't make sense to me that you don't want to know. I I get that there are a whole bunch. We have a president that doesn't want to know. I get it. I think the white any administration should have a person like you that works like literally works the department yeah. of right behavioral health yeah but <laughs> so right. a place to go download and health. say you know I'm not getting like and being able to 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 navigate this 
this stuff that's very human. That You know, you change your brain, you change your life by what you do. So I can wake up in the morning and go, I don't want to do this. And I hate it. And I can get all pissy and all this. And then I go, oh, wait a minute. I told myself. I was going to do this. And I told a bunch of people I was going to be you there. You mean climbing the rock the other day? Yeah. Because I watched rock. you do it. Oh, my God. I saw you on film of you going, like they had you up going this side of a mountain, climbing a rock. And I went, Susie. I was like, ah. You know, like, and there you were. You were doing it. Yeah. You go, okay. Okay. I had enough. Like, you were way the hell up there. The okay, up, no, right. I'm going down now. Right. Like, you want, you were done, right? Yeah. And I was done because I said, okay, I went as far as I needed to go. I went past what I wanted to do. Right. Because actually, I'm afraid of heights, which yeah, is me really too. funny. Yeah. yeah. So I did it anyway. So that's the definition of courage. Be afraid to do it anyway. Plus, I got all these 30-somethings and 40-somethings, young people there, veterans, yeah. who are cheering me on, right? And all that. So if I'm going to act like a wise elder, then I've got to do what it is that I ask other people to do. That's just what I believe. Right. And the way that I got up that mountain was I knew that once I got off, got on that rock wall and it was a mountain in Joshua Tree, I was going to dance. Like, that's what I do. I'm a dancer. So I said to the woman that, that taught us how to climb, I said, okay, when we get up there, I get a couple of steps I want us to do. So, And I had fun. Yeah. And, and I think that that's important. So in a climate where we believe that the young really do make great changes. Rosanna, I mean, you've done so much in your own life. You broke so many rules. You were such a great disruptor, and you still are. And now you have the wisdom to go with it. So they have the courage, and they have the tenacity to go make change, and they also need us. They need that wisdom behind them. I, I I am so inspired by the young people that are coming up that like for the, you know, I mean, I have a millennial daughter who's amazing human being and yes, great, but I mean, she's got her ballot there. It's like, I, and I'm, I am, and I'm, I, I'm really fighting like, sorry, I need you to vote now. So it's like, here it is. Here so you sit down together. You fill it out together. No, but she, no, she is here. She's, yeah. she's doing it. She'll and do the, it. Yeah. She's been busy. Go, she's been working. And I, I, and, and then go out and celebrate. Yes. Go ahead that's like, I'm excited for her to do it because I said, your voice does matter. Like yeah. she was on the East coast. I said, you need to come home and vote. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it, it is that important. Your yeah, vote is. matters. That's and that's, that's what's important to, for young people that, that I'm inspired with David Hogg, the Emma Gonzalez and yeah. the kid, those are the Parkland students that witnessed, you know, all their friends, Mm-hmm. be killed um, by gun violence and what they've done with their trauma. I know. And it turned it into activism. is so inspiring. Gre- Greta. Yeah. You know, um, Greta right. Thunberg is, is has, is, insp- she inspired Jane Fonda. She inspired the yes. Fire Joe Fridays. And that, that, so the, it's the young people now that are, it's their future. We, we screwed this up for the young people. Like, so I just want to kind of give them, well, just help do whatever I can for their voices to be heard, right. for them to be able to have a beautiful world. If it's possible, whatever I can do for the rest of my life, you know, to, for our purpose, fuck up right? to be able, for them to be able to have something that they can in, actually thrive in. Yeah. And they look to us and they deserve to have us there behind them and next to them and helping. Yeah. Um, and I have a daughter too, as you know. And so when the Black Lives Matter um, uh, movement, and it's always, should have always been a movement. It wasn't, of course, and I'm so grateful now. So she goes to her little community right here in North, you know, West Los Angeles, uh, 
west of uh, Los Angeles and says, we need to protest. <laughs> we need to get a protest out there. Bless her heart. And she made me a sign. So I came home. I was up at the Wild Horses and I came home and I looked at the sign she made for me. And she organized this entire march, right? And I looked at the sign and this is the sign she gave me. I can't believe I'm 70 years old and I still have to protest this shit. That was my son. <laughs> she made me, and I loved it. And yeah. I didn't organize. I've organized protests. I didn't have to. She did it. Great. It was on her. It was her generation. Yeah. I can't tell you how many young people came up to me and thanked me for that sign and thanked me for being there. Well, this is a movement that they're trying to squelch this current administration, and sure. we're just not going to allow that no. to happen. It's time. it's time, and it really needs to happen. And and I'm I'm also. Uh, and, and and also what I've learned, and I just had Kathy Griffin here um, last week talking about the book White Fragility, which is a really important book. Yes. Uh, Robin D'Angelo, I think, yes. wrote it. And um, it's important uh, for all of us who happen to have white skin to read this book. As much as you think we're woke, you know, we just, like, we're, we really, like, I like to think of myself as I... Mm-hmm. I'm woke in this area, and, and and as much as I feel I really am with every part of my being, I'm not. And and exactly. just for the fact that I have mm-hmm. uh, privileges. That's right. And and to not honor the trauma that the African American people have gone through for 400 years and still go through it yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. Who are we? Who are we? That we don't honor that and say, well, that happened a long time, or I no, didn't do it. It's yes, you did. And it's still going on. It's happening in Beverly Hills. Exactly. It happened last week where a guy was racial profile. He walking down the street holding a Versace bag, and he got pulled, or like, and he was really scared. You could see, I'm, I've got, you know, like we've seen our with our own eyes, you know, eight minutes and 45 seconds, George Floyd being killed by a cop. I mean, it's terrifying. It is. That they live in this anxiety and, yeah. and all the time. And, you know, I got a, a small taste of it because when I was with my family, so when I was pushing my African-American um, nephew in the cart, in the grocery cart, so I'm, it's 1969, I'm 19, and he's a, less than a year in the cart, and I'm grocery shopping, and I'm going through, and a white woman walks by me, and I think she's going to smile at this adorable baby and I hear she looks right, gets real close to me like she's going to say something cute about the baby and says, and love her. Wow. Yeah. No, and I mean, I'm like, whoa. Like, it's like th- this is all the time. This is all the time, every day. So I had an experience. I've had many experiences in that area because, but when I was 14, 13, 12, wait, from 11 till, wait, what was it? Nine till, I'm waiting, 11 till, 14 I lived in Virginia in a in a commune that was in Virginia which was near it was a town called Bentonville and I had to go to school in in um, Front Royal Virginia and you man they had hoods in their closet that's right this was a really scary place and I don't know did I talk about this I well I have because I have I, I don't know if I talk about this in another show but um I had a uh, um a black boyfriend um and I had taken a drug, a hallucinogenic, when I was, you know, I checked out uh, acid. <laughs> so I dropped acid. 
and I was I wrote Black Power on my hand, and I was walking down the hallway, you know, with my Black Power <laughs> written, you know, Black Power, and the principal came, who was you know, and grabbed me, and um, and uh, basically I freaked out. So how dare you touch me? You know, like you know, you're you. you this is so racist. It's such a racist. Why are the black kids sitting in the back of the bus and back of the 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 classroom, which they were, they were told to. God. And um, and so I was actually expelled from not not even suspended. I was expelled from the middle school of uh, Front Royal Virginia, and um, my mother decided I should go move out of Front Royal Virginia because when I left the school. Um, because I had a black boyfriend, I was called an yeah. N lover, yeah. and um, and almost got uh, beat up by a bunch of redneck boys, and more than that. But um, thank God, it didn't get to that uh, where you know they were attempted to rape me. But I, mm-hmm. uh, my friends, my boyfriend and his friends, thank you God, like angels came and it became something that was about to turn into a real race riot. And protecting me and at that moment it was the craziest thing my mother was driving from the laundromat in town where she did you know, little piles of laundry and she just happened to be like the crazy like drive at this moment and i remember slamming in front of her uh, hood and saying get me out of this place like this town like get me out so i moved to new jersey and lived in front on uh, um and you know and mm-hmm. in south orange junior high and also had all my friends were black, and 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 I was it continued to be called the you know an end lover um, mm-hmm. because of my love for black Americans. Yeah, yeah. It's you know I I just keep hoping that I'll live even longer and longer. I'm always grateful when I wake up at my age, and uh, and so that I can see the turn. I can see that we can't go back. And I, I have to say too, I'm not that surprised that we're where we're at after having Barack Obama as a president, that backlash has always been there. And, and look at the Me people, Too movement with women. Yeah, I'm grateful. Someone said this the other day about they've always been there. It's just important for us to now see how desperate and scared people are that want to hold on to their idea of power, their idea of right and wrong, their idea of having it our way and only our way. They'll lie and cheat and steal. I mean, I get that. I understand it. I'm just glad that it's more open because I think there was during the Obama administration, we kind of thought, well, oh, 70% of the people in the United States are all loving this or 80%. No, 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 no. This 38 to 40% has always been there, and who knows how long they're going to be there. Um, and you know what? I gotta, I gotta keep dialoguing with them. Somehow, I've got to keep dialoguing with them. I'm not saying it's easy, and they're not worse than me, and they're not better than me. It, there's a difference that I just don't have those principles. I can't think that way. I can't think of having someone have something less than me, whatever it is. Not just a right, but anything. I can't fathom it. It doesn't work for me on any level. And I am not I am not egocentric enough to believe that somehow I've done anything in this world better than anybody else or that I deserve anything more than anybody else. I, I just can't exactly. live that way. No, and what happens then is that I'm open every day. It's like if you need to change now, I'm here. I'm open. And I hope you'll be open to my change as well. So I invite everybody you know, to want to know, to have an open heart, open mind, and start to create the person you deserve to be, not what some party 
or some movement or anything decides. You decide who you're going to be and how you're going to be based on your principles, not your feelings. And my principles are all about how we are all of equal value, period, period. There's no other way to describe it. We are all of equal value. I have no right to anything more than anybody else. I'll tell you one quick story. So I was, my stepdad was Native American, Black, and Italian. Talk about a wonderful combination. He looked just exactly, looked much more Native American. It's the Penobscot tribe in Old Town, Maine. He looked like a Curtis photograph. In fact, I bought a Curtis photograph with a, a, a Native man wrapped in a buffalo skin. And when I looked at his face, it was my dad's face. So it was, and he was the most wonderful dad ever. So having grown up with a lot of Native American uh, uh, culture and all of that, when I first came here, uh, I didn't know this, but Los Angeles has a huge Native population because of forced relocation. And forced relocation was another way to make sure that the United States government could take over all the Indian land. That, That was the point of that. So this wonderful organization calls me called United American Indian Involvement. And they say, will you do equine therapy with our kids? And will you start a program for us? I say, absolutely. So they start sending over uh, Native kids, you know, 5, 10, 15 years old. And they come in basketball outfits and a basketball to my ranch. And I said, what, uh, what tribe do you belong to? I don't know. What? Like, they don't want to talk about being Native. They are Mexican. As far as they're concerned, they're Hispanic. Because they've already figured out the the socioeconomic level is native is on the bottom, so Hispanics so up a horrible. level. So I'm just going to say I'm Hispanic. To me, they're the soul on the top. It was level, so like, sad whoosh. for me, right? And I knew because I'd done a lot of research in this. Uh, Marie Yellowbird, wonderful psychologist and researcher, came up with the term historical trauma. So I knew that they were suffering from, and and it's really true, you know, Jewish population, lots, black population, lots of historical trauma. Women not being able to vote and everything else, we went through historical trauma. So I give these kids a rope halter, which you can't quite figure out how it goes on, unless you know one, and a lead line, and I point up to the hill and I go, go up there and get one of those horses for me, please, and bring them back. So I just send them up, like, okay, let's see what, what happens. Those kids, Rosanna, walked up that hill. I don't care if they were 5 or 15. Looked at the rope halter, put it on the horse like they've done it all their lives while I'm holding their basketball, and walked that horse down the hill like they've done it all their lives. And I'm saying, what the hell am I seeing? Like, I thought they would struggle. I thought, you know, it's like the white kids go, I don't know what I can do. the DNA in their soul. Exactly. So then I do it over and over and over again. I go, okay, let me figure this out because I'm a pretty logical person. Historical trauma is real. It affects your chemistry. It, it, uh, it affects your genes because genes are nothing more than cells, and trauma affects your emotions, which affects your cells. So that's real. Oh, the balance. We have to believe in historical greatness. How can you have one without the other? I watched Native children walk up to these horses like their ancestors had and connect with that horse and become the leader of that horse with no effort whatsoever because of the historical greatness. And if we don't start telling people about both, which is how we started this conversation together, we talked about the effects of trauma that don't serve us, and then we talked about the post-traumatic growth. 
Like I opened that condom store because my father, my most abusive person in my life, was an entrepreneur. That's why I did that. I got that gift from him. That's just a fact. So I think it's really important that we think about all of that on a daily basis. I hope you and hope everybody else looks at their historical greatness and use that more on a daily basis. Because the fear and sadness will always come. The fear and sadness will show up every day, like when you're doing stuff. And if you don't honor your fear and sadness, I'm not saying don't don't ignore it. I say honor it. Just make sure you understand it on a daily basis so it doesn't turn into anger. Because anger doesn't exist without fear and sadness. It's like red, yellow, and blue. Okay, I know if I need purple, I got to use red and blue or I won't have purple. Well, anger comes from fear and sadness, unwitnessed, unprocessed, unacknowledged fear and sadness. So you're in there with that horse, you're fearful, and you know, you're sad that you might get kicked and you honored it, and that didn't ever turn to anger. Right. And I know, though, I still can go into the grocery store and the checkout counter person's having a personal conversation on my time and I can't get where I want to go and I'm getting irritated. And I can say, oh, that's all those people in my family that couldn't give me the attention because they were too busy drinking. Oh, that's why I get so irritated all the time, right? Interesting. It's so clear to me now. Every time I get irritated, frustrated, um, angry, or rageful, I can look at how is that like what was before that no one witnessed, no one acknowledged, and no one helped me with. Isn't that amazing? A lot of anger around me. Yes. And it's all from the past. And you'll keep thinking it's present, and it's not. It's just people are around like a lot and it's yeah. it's triggering. And then you can also, you know, then it triggers your own stuff. You and know? your own stuff. So and it, it, reactivity is just right. like, oh, just so to be you, to, to react to someone else's fear and sadness, anger. So you turn- just said it though. You said someone else's. Yeah. It's not yours. So if someone's coming at but you. But I have my own. I do. Exactly. I, ha- I can react in an angry, fearful way. Right. I can react in anger. triggered very easily and when i go there like i feel sick like i my body feels depleted like i like i i feel sick from it it's an energetic drain yeah you will feel drained because it does drain you it truly drains you it makes you sick so here's what the veterans taught me so they taught me that they had to go into battle with a weapon they had to have a gun and the word trigger comes from some kind of an implement that you have to pull or you have to push a button in order to make it work, right? So I was thinking about this the other day and I thought, okay, they keep talking about getting triggered and getting triggered. And I said, what did I do differently so that I don't have to quote, get triggered? And I said, oh, oh, I can't pick up the weapon. What they're doing is about them. And that's a daily practice. It's an hourly practice. I sometimes think I haven't picked up that gun, that old trauma gun. And all of a sudden, I'm with somebody, and I'm feeling myself. And I go, oh, shit, how did I get this gun in my hand? Like, oh, put that down. That's their stuff. And I always joke, and I tell you, I've done this to you before, where we're like, well, you know, I'm half Italian, so I love olive oil. So I'm going to give you my olive oil slick so that someone's shit's coming at you. Don't absorb it. It's not yours. Yeah. I don't even care if someone said, you made me do it. No. <laughs> you made me feel that way. Yeah. No. Uh, I honor you Many, too many much. people in my life do that. Exactly. I Ooh. honor you too much for you to blame me. Yeah. Like, I honor you too much. That's like not dignified for you to blame. Like, that's your stuff. 
you get to own it because if you own it, then you can get to change it. You can either keep it the way it is or you can change it. But if you start blaming me, you've got no control. You've got no control over who you want to be. And how sad is that? I don't want any more sadness. Let's just, what do we do? What do we do to change it up? And let's say, boy, I just want to stay in the positive uh, right now Mm -hmm. that we're going to be okay, all of us. We're going to be okay. We're going to get through because I want to think of, I can remember when I was a little girl and I read Anne Frank. Yeah. And I was horrified. I I couldn't, I remember being 12 years old going, how did people let that happen and then you read how she really died yes, <laughs> yes after all of that after and how she died of typhus and just I in know. a concentration camp away from her sister i mean just horrible. horrible horrible so then i thought okay wait a minute and then my uh, you know my uh, veteran friends what they've had to go through what my black family members have had to go through who am i to not who am i to in any way get despondent and not say, oh, just forget it. It's just going to... No, I'm never going to forget anything. I'm never going to forget any of what people go through in order to get on the other side. I'm not going to forget slavery. I'm not going to forget the Holocaust. I'm not going to forget anything that's happened because I'm going to wake up today and do my best to make sure it doesn't happen again. So that's it. (laughs) That's all I can do today. Thank you, Susie. I just Thank adore you. you. Su- Susie Landolfi, I adore you too. You've been a, a, if it wasn't for you in my life in the last, sitting these last years right now, um, I don't know if I would have survived. You've well, helped me through so much. Well, and you the same for me. You just don't know it as much because, oh. you know, you say that a lot. And I, I can't tell you, I do this work and I hang out with people like you because you make me a better person, Rosanna. Oh, you make me you. a better person person i don't know and how i want you to, know to tell me I how i do you. that later because i don't get it but thank you <laughs> all right mm. thank you bless you can you tell me about the big heart ranch and yes. where where we get people who can make donations for this incredible work that you do so it's big and you can go right on our website and make a donation. You can also email our wonderful administrative assistant. She's going to love this, right, once I put this out. Amanda, A-M-A-N-D-A-D-A, at BigHeartRanch.org. And if you, she's the one that keeps everybody on track. And we have an executive director uh, who's wonderful and a board of directors. And we are in Malibu. And if you also want to come and visit and volunteer, then you just email Sandy, S-A-N-D-I-E. And she'll hook you up. You can come and hang out with those wild horses and all the pigs. We have eight pigs, so sometimes we call it Pig Heart Ranch. And ducks and chickens and geese and goats and sheep. And so. a blind donkey or something? So we had a blind horse for a long time, blind, Tenny. That was and the for one. seven years, he just passed. That was, Tenny was the yeah, one that died. Tenny's, Tenny's the best. Well, here's oh. how the universe works. So Tenny dies, and the veterinarian—that's the one that you were so upset you were in the in the yeah. In it the was vet. the hard one of the hardest deaths I've ever experienced Aww. was that horse, and the doctor that helped save him many times when he went through colic because he had so many issues from being born to a, a, a mare that was malnourished. That the doctor called me from the West Coast Equine and said uh, just a couple about a week ago or a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, we all loved Tenny so much and we miss him. And I just came from a ranch that had a, a little baby filly born blind. 
Are you taking? Think about this. Yeah. So, are you getting her? <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's only five and a half months old right now. So I've got to go up to Somos and go see her. And then we're going to bring her to the ranch when it's right for her to leave her mom. Because I want her to stay with her mom as, Can her as mom long as come possible. to you? No. Yeah. Can't bring both. Yeah. Well, I might be able to bring both, but I'm not sure, sure the owner wants to, to give up the mare as Aww. well. But that is, that's how life works, right? Right. So... I can't wait for you to see her. I can't. <laughs> I love that you. I love that you're. Uh, and I wanted to you. say, merging vets and players for any veterans out there, any professional athletes, please. You deserve. You deserve support. You deserve uh, peer to peer support, and you get to get a new team back. And just check out vetsandplayers.org. And they go to the ranch, and they help me out at the ranch all the time. So we're very synergistic. Nice. That's how we work. We're all in this together. We are. We are. Thank you. I love you. Love you. Bless you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review Radical Musings to help other listeners find the show. And subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast to be alerted every time we post a new episode. Radical Musings is brought to you by Audio Up, produced by Krista Liney and Carla Braun. Edited by Jeremiah Zimmerman. Production support provided by Ashley Ardent, Sam Winter, Tyler Dorson, Emma Rappold, and Richard Regal. Thank you all so much. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.